my request to you tonight would be that you make your heart available and step personally into his presence at this moment. He's here. He's promised that where two or three are gathered together that he would be here. But you have to make room for him in your heart. You have to be able to say, I want to host the Holy Spirit within me. Because it's by that step that anything that I say tonight would take on truth or resonance or be life-changing or powerful. We're going to be uh, tonight in Luke chapter 14, if you're going to go ahead and get there. I will begin with verse 1. It says, And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Uh, again, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get through all of this uh, passage tonight. Uh, I don't want to rush because the Lord has stopped me in my preparation of reading this and studying this and, and pointed out some very strange things. And I'll start here with this strange phrase, that they watched him. That phrase means they watched him closely. This should be the welcomed observation of others inviting them to view the details of our life. The fact that they watched him was one of those things that knowing Jesus' nature and the little bit that we understand about him compared to the fullness of all that's there is him being watched was desired. He was not in any moment trying to hide. He was not in any moment altering his plans, trying to stay out of the way of people. He was every day living with the intention of his life being observed. And it's not, again, that we don't mind it being observed. It should be our desire that our life be observed. When he has made us, given us the power to release light and life, when we have within us the power and the authority to speak change and let a new ex a reality exist within somebody else, then we should have a desire that our life be observed, welcoming it, hoping for it. And again, I'm sorry to chase the rabbits that are in my head and in my heart, but this is one of the truths of the Scripture, that whatever you have in your heart, whatever that list is, is going to create an atmosphere around you that others are going to see. If I look in my heart and I just have it you know, lined off so things can be written across my heart, if I have bitterness in my heart, if I have fear in my heart, dread in my heart, what is the atmosphere going to look like? It will be an exact reflection of whatever is written on your heart. I give you this strange warning. If you find people who are coming to you to unload their sad stories, to, who are giving you the dread, and you find this is coming to you on a consistent basis, you might want to check what's written on your heart because that atmosphere is creating that as people enter. Because the other is, off, is also true. If I have the power of God written on my heart, if I have the love of God written on my heart, the peace and the joy of God written on my heart, what's the atmosphere going to look like? Exactly like what's written on my heart. And what will that atmosphere do when people walk into it? It will change them. So don't believe if it's negative stuff, bitterness, rejection, frustration, whatever it is, that will also change them when they move in. And I can tell you, there's times in our life when certain things happen that we write it on our heart ourselves and we want people to know how badly we've been hurt. 
you know, how rejected we have been treated, how abandoned we are. We write it and project it. And God is saying, but what I've written on your heart is designed to create an atmosphere so that when people walk into it, their lives will be changed. Why would we not want our life examined? Why would we not want someone to watch us in great detail? Yep, there are moments that I would like to go back and erase that other people have seen. But, but we live through those. We ask God to forgive us. We seek healing for those bad examples and those bad witnesses that we were on certain days. And we don't let ourselves linger there because we should be people who absolutely want our life observed. Not on a casual way. If somebody sees me, that's okay. We were a light put on a hill for the world to see the difference that God makes. That is our desired position. They watched him. My message Sunday morning was about the reasons testing comes. I have uh, been in a few of these this week. Unusual moments that I didn't see coming. Tests that fly up in your face. They come so abruptly. And they do exactly what I, having preached on this, I'm, I'm kind of fully aware of it that those tests are going to do one of two things. They're going to expose something in your heart. They're going to expose a weakness. They're going to expose a place that needs to be exposed. You have to understand, if I were to draw a line right here and say everything to this side is God's future for you. This is his plan for you. And by the way, he says that it's good in his heart. That plan is good. But he also knows that if there's some black spot, some weakness some difficulty that you're facing, some broken relationship that is in here, he also knows that that can't be carried across that line. Because the future he has planned for you is a future absent that brokenness. Absent the anger, absent the bitterness, whatever it happens to be, he cannot carry it in there. So on this side of that line, he exposes it by bringing you into these moments of test. So what is happening in your life that is exposing something? Well, mine got exposed pretty handily. I'm grateful that God, by revelation, brought it. But also know, and Jay, on Sunday night, when I got home from church, he said, I just had this strange vision. He said, I saw something. It just was very brief. And he, he said, it was in this chair. So I sat down at the table. He came around the table and he caught both sides of my head. And he prayed over me. And then he breathed the Holy Spirit over me. I know now. After Monday and Tuesday, I know now why that was so necessary that God released that to, to cover my heart, to secure it, so that I can stand here today to say the test that came only did one thing, and it was to, to prove that the reality of that moment, that covering that he put over that weakness, was about his glory. That test would either expose something, if you remember, I used the illustration of the inner tube when we were kids and the bicycle. We'd take it down to, the, down to the station, they'd take it out, if we hadn't already taken it out, and they'd put air in it and they'd stick it under the water the first time to expose where the problem was. They would take it out, they would patch it, and, the, and they didn't put it automatically back on the bicycle. The thing that they would do next was they would air it up again, and they'd put it back under the water. What was the purpose of the second test? to show the strength of the patch, to show the strength of the healing, to show the strength of the recovery. The testing will either expose the situation or it will show what God has done and you can stand on the other side of victory. 
all of those, the things that we face, are going to be the evidence to someone what God is like. They watch us. Even the lost people watch us. And out of what they observe, they're going to draw conclusions about God. They were watching Jesus. They were watching everything he did. And out of what they watched, they were going to draw conclusions about who he was and about the God he represented. They watched everything. It should be our desire. They watched him closely. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, you don't have to go there. I'm just going to read it quickly. But we know the scripture very well. He says, Paul writing under the leadership of the Holy Spirit says, You are epistles written in our hearts, designed, known and read of all men, for as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. We are designed to be letters written by the Holy Spirit, read by everybody, so that they could see exactly who he is, not us. That's the truth. Verse 2. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had dropsy. Dropsy, according to anything you can read, was just an awful uh, retention of fluid. And it was often, since the word dropsy also means of the head, it was probably that, that the, the face and the head were very swollen by fluid that was being retained. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now this is Jesus setting up this question. Certainly he knew the Pharisees that he was dining with, he knew their hearts, and he sets up this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The issue would not revolve around the healing directly, whether it was okay to heal. He wanted to, to raise a new question and say, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? When Jesus healed the man, did he work on the Sabbath and violate God's command? This was what he was prompting them to have to answer. And they held their peace. They wouldn't answer him. And he took him and he healed him and let him go and answered them saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fall into a pit and will not straightway pull him up out of the, on the Sabbath day? And again, they could not answer him, could not give an answer to these things. We have to understand that Jesus never broke a commandment of God. Wouldn't do it. As a matter of fact, he said, I came to fulfill that those things to give you the evidence that all that's true. He never broke a commandment. But what he did often was he offended man's traditions that surrounded those commandments. Did that on a regular basis. The commandment would be this. The interpretation of it would expand to include all of this. The not working on the Sabbath. So they wrote a lot of things about what that was supposed to look like. And Jesus constantly offended what they had wrote about the commandment itself. And we have to be very careful not to create those commandments. I can think of a few. I, I, I probably, if I thought a little bit, I could think of several more. But uh, one of those kind of things that we create is that somewhere we have, at least if you talk to my mother, that not dancing was a commandment of God. She didn't know where it was, but she knew it had to be in there. The dancing was, was a sin. And what just got done in that situation? That was a man-made commandment. Because a lot of things are put around, written in by men. Jesus constantly offended those traditions. Here Jesus' logic is very simple and it can't be disputed. And they know because if they had an animal in a ditch on the Sabbath day, you know, out of concern for the animal, they would pull it out. So Jesus is simply giving them a comparison. If you would do that, why would you not for a second 
imagine not healing someone whose heart's broken on the Sabbath day. Legalism, which is what they were bound in, what so much today is bound in, as seen here within the Pharisees, is always an expression of pride. You cannot separate the two. I don't care if if it's the doctrine of the Methodist church or the Mormon church or the Church of Christ or the Baptist church. The legalism that goes with it, the things that surround it, that that, that we try to use to give each of those denominations definition. Why we're different than somebody else. Why we immerse instead of sprinkle. You know, why we do certain things that, that others might not do will generally and can very easily become the source of pride that this is how we're different. And many of the times it's because of the legalism that we've established around the names that we carry. Verse 7, and he put forth a parable to those which were bidden. And let me just stop right quick and say these are parables, not fables. A parable is him using something that's actually true. A fable would be a made-up story. A parable is him using something out of, out of everyday, ordinary life to bring an illustration, but this is 100% practically true. And he put forth a parable to those who were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms, saying unto them, When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him came to say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he has bade thee comes, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So Jesus, knowing that legalism is based on pride, deals with it very abruptly. Now the uniqueness of why I said this was a parable was because this would actually happen. This was not a made-up story. This is what would happen at any banquet, especially at any wedding, that you were seated based on how well you knew the host. How well you knew as, as a guest, it was all determined by the one who was, who was the host there who would, by his determination, seat you. So he's warning them, don't come and take the highest place because that's your decision about where you belong. You need to be seated based on what the host says and where you belong so go sit in the low place and wait then for the host to come and reseat you and say friend come to a different place and come in and be close and eat the, the meat that is shared so jesus is giving us this real clear picture in, in this not only of the pride that's associated with this and what it would take for us to assume i, be, I deserve an honored position He's also telling us some some very deep and profound things about what will happen at a wedding feast that someday you and I are going to attend. The great question here is that he's kind of giving us with this clarity. If I went in and sat down in an honored place, what would cause me to be demoted? Well, he makes it very clear. How well did you know the host? How much time had you spent? What was the relationship like with the host who would actually be the bridegroom? How well did you know the bridegroom? All of that would determine how close you got to set. If you were in a low place, in a lower room, and they moved you closer to a higher room, what would promote you into that position? We need to know that. 
Jesus is talking and giving us an illustration of pride, but he also said this is a parable because this is true. When we attend the wedding feast someday, when this story unfolds in our eternal life, what would it take for me to be promoted into a position of honor? What would it take for me if I actually sat down there, mistakenly, for them to come say, you belong out here, and we know what the out here is talked about in the scripture, that is the outer darkness, because according to the oriental wedding that's being described here, everything was done around a fire. And once the honored guest would be seated because how well they knew the bridegroom. How do you intimately know the bridegroom? You know him by the conduit that he created between us here and him there. What's the conduit? The Holy Spirit. What's it going to take for me to know him intimately? I can't go outside of the Holy Spirit because it says the Holy Spirit is going to lead me into all truth. If I'm going to be intimate with him, know him, share life with him, it's going to have to be done through the conduit that he established between my heart and his heart, and that's the Holy Spirit. You want to know how to be promoted? Be intimate with the Holy Spirit that would, that's going to reveal the true nature of Jesus so that it can actually, by that conduit, shine in us. You want to be moved down? You cut that channel and try to be a good Christian without a con- Holy Spirit connection with the one whose name is goodness. Jesus says, don't be so prideful. Be humble in your place, and you sit and let the honored person serve you. The whole wedding picture, I'm going to have to teach on again soon, because everything that I ever studied that answers one question, it always seems to create two more. Even as I teach this, I've got several questions that I'm going to have to study through. True humility is hard, hard to understand. We believe, often, that it's some strange perspective that we develop about ourselves. It's not that. True humility originates in me knowing who I am, first of all, genuinely coming to grips with who I am. I know God values me. I know, and I don't mean to be embarrassing, that, but I outswam a whole bunch of folks so that I could be the one who's here. There was a swimming contest and I won. That was God's plan. I'm here because there was something unique just like you happen. I'm here. My significance doesn't require anything else. God put me here. That's my validation. Whether you validate me or not, I like it when you do. The true validation is that, that God put me here. I have a purpose, and it's found in his heart. So we understand that humility is first originates with me knowing me. And I know God values me, but he also wants me to admit before him, like Jesus did, without you, I can do nothing. He wants us to understand our place. But he wants us to understand it as it stands in relationship to who he is. Just knowing who we are doesn't do anything. Understanding who we are has to actually create the moment so that we can understand who he is. Because that's going to bring the humility. That's going to bring my clarity of thinking about myself because I know who I am. I know who I'm not. I also know who he is and I know what he's not. And so I can sit in proper relationship with him, being humble before him, because I understand those two pieces of the story. He also says that if you're going to be humble, you're going to be reconciled back to a condition pre-sin. When Adam and Eve introduced sin by that choice, they then, by that choice, 
have created the truth that, that we now inherit a sin nature. For all have sinned. But I was born with a sin nature. I confirmed it with my own sin. But the reality is that I am a sinner. Prior to their sin, we know this is very factually, scripturally proven, that before that sin, that they had only eyes to see the other. They were 100% other-centered. When they ate of the fruit, it says their eyes were open. They saw something they'd never seen before. We know what that was because they covered themselves. So we know in that moment they had an awareness of self that prior to that they did not have. Before that, they only saw the other. Now they could see themselves. And self got introduced into the story. What was Satan trying to do? Trying to get them to become fascinated with the creation and lose sight of the creator. And he was very effective. They became fascinated with themselves just as we are. But think about this. That sin that they created, established in their lives, that brought that separation and brought the reality of them now being self-centered instead of other-centered, when we become Christians and the blood of Jesus now comes and covers that sin, and he says because of that, he's reconciling us back to something. It's an accounting term, like reconciling your checkbook against the bank. You trust that the bank's is true until proven otherwise. You use that as truth, and you're reconciling yours against it. What did he reconcile us back to? He reconciled us back to a place prior to sin. That's right. Which created an other-centered focus. What's going to be the first evidence of humility? That my heart, once again, is other-centered. It's going to be truly hard because of I understand who I am in relationship to him. The first fruit that that's going to produce is I'm going to understand who I am in relationship to you. Where do we hear that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the basis of it. That's where we hear it. Because our sin is not covered by the blood of Jesus. It allows us now to have, as Jordy said, to have a relationship with the Father that now establishes a nature in us that allows me to be other-centered toward my neighbor. It's going to be the true evidence of humility. He's speaking of it here. In Genesis chapter 15, God has made great promises to Abraham. He says two things. I'm going to make you a great people. You look at the sky, look at the sand, That's the way you're going to be. Unbelievable. And by you, all the world's going to be blessed. So what was he sharing with them? Jesus is coming through you. That's the blessing of all the world. Jesus is coming through you. So he has Abraham do something. Because Abraham asked him this question. How will I know that all this is true? How can I have assurance that all of these promises that you're making me are 100% true? And God says, okay, I'll show you how I can prove it. So he gives Abraham an instruction. He says, I want you to take a cow or a bull or a calf, and I want you to cut it in half, and I want you to put each part over here. I want you to take sheep, and I want you to cut them in half. And, I want you, and so he gives them four things to cut in half, and then he says, the birds I want, I want you to, to, to sacrifice, but take two of those, you can't cut those in half. The covenant then, the way the covenant was going to be sealed, was that God and Abraham... We're going to walk through this bloody alley and back. And by that, the sacrifice, the commitment would be made. And God says, because of that, all of my promises will come true. But what's the problem with that picture? That would have made every promise contingent upon Abraham's ability to keep his side of the contract. And God says, I can't risk that. So God did something. 
the end of the day, Abraham goes to sleep. And the Shekinah glory of God, it describes it beautifully in Genesis 15, the Shekinah glory of God comes down and passes through that bloody alley alone. Saying what to Abraham? My promises are good because of me and not because of you. I'm going to deliver everything because my promise to you is sealed in me, not in your ability to keep it because he knew that Abraham could not keep it. What do we know about Abraham shortly thereafter? He comes into battle. He's afraid for his own life. He sends Sarah as his sister to the king and says, here, you can have her. The king finds out and says, why in the world did you do this? She's your wife, for goodness sake. Why did you do this? And he does it not once, but he does it twice. We know God already knew the weakness that was in Abraham's heart. And the first time he did that, contract would have been broken, promise is gone. God has made us extravagant promises. He says, I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you. That's a pretty extravagant promise. I'll never leave you or forsake you. That's a pretty extravagant promise. I'm going to give you the security of heaven. That's a pretty good promise. He's given us some extravagant promises. And I said, God, how do I know? He said, I want to tell you. Because when this contract was formed, a covenant was formed, there was a place down here for Abraham to sign, and there was a place for God to sign. And I've taught this wrong for many years. I always taught that God says, I will sign my side. Abraham, I'm not requiring you to sign yours because everything hinges on my willingness to sign my side. Yep, that 100% would have delivered the promise. But God also said, Abraham, there's certain things I need for you to accomplish. Yeah, you're saved. Now the, the promises are secure. But I also need you to fulfill your side of the promise. That's not casual. I've got something for you to do. I need for you to do it. So just signing God's side wouldn't actually fulfill everything that needed to be done. So what was the beauty of God's plan? How does he assure us today that all of these promises are true? Heaven, eternal life, the Holy Spirit, what does he do? He signs my side. He not only signed his side that says, I'm going to deliver no matter what you do, He says, I'm going to deliver your side too. How's he going to do it? How could God secure and say, everything I expect from you, I'm going to do? You see, Jesus assured God's side. But by Jesus, someone else secures this side that says, you'll never have to do it. I'm going to do it through you. Who does that side? That's the Holy Spirit. That's him in us doing God's work through us so that not only are we redeemed, we have life, we have regeneration, so that we can accomplish those things that God asks us to accomplish so that that covenant is fulfilled. His side, delivering his promises based on us, delivering ours, but he says, I know you can't, so I'm going to put somebody in you who can. And by the way, that's going to be me too. It's quite a covenant. The problem is, we have to admit, I can't sign my side, because most Christians will take on the responsibility to say, I'll, I'll do it myself, I'll sign my side. Yep, Jesus will save me. I'll take care of the rest. No. What did Jesus say? Without the Father, I can do nothing. Jesus wouldn't even sign his side. He knew that the Holy Spirit had to come to fulfill everything he needed to do. It had to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, to my humanity, I can't sign my side. The Holy Spirit had to come and do it. It's an amazing picture. Jesus is trying to say, if, you, if you're going to be humble, it's not taking on some bowed position. It's not coming into some false humility so that other people will notice you. Well, that happens a lot. He's saying humility has an image to it, and you'll recognize it when you see it. 
Because when you see it happen, I listen and watch, you know, on YouTube and other places. I love to hear these amazing messages of men. One of the things that always comes across, you can tell it, I can't watch it if the humility is not written on them. If the atmosphere around them is not producing humility so that it's evident that what's coming out of them is God, I can't watch. You can tell the difference just like that. There's a few preachers who have tremendous followings. You do not perceive the genuine humility that comes around them. But when you see one, when you, when you understand it, you can recognize this person understands I have nothing to say outside of the Spirit of God. God, we thank you for this time together and just the revelation that you bring. And it just I love it, Lord. You just keep amazing me. I just thank you, Lord, that this word never gets old. It never gets tired, and it's never boring. We just speak to this goodness over this body, praying, Lord, that this truth would just penetrate. Lord, that it would be accepted and the lives would be so radically changed and that we wouldn't turn back. The things, Lord, of value that we place value on that's holding us back, I pray, Lord, that in these nights, in these moments, we would just drop it and be able to run, recognizing that your presence is what pulls us and not the sermon itself. Just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.